be seated. If you would open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 18. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, you can find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, and you can find Exodus 18 on page 55 of that black Bible. If you go into literature, you will find that there are many stories that are written that have a meaning far beyond what is just there on the page. My two middle children are currently reading Animal Farm right now. Certainly as Orwell wrote that, he meant it to be more than a story about how animals might organize themselves into governmental structures. Sometimes stories don't do that. Our two youngest boys two and three years old, are currently reading through and, and really digesting Goodnight Moon. And I don't think that that book has any meaning behind what it says on the very front page. It's just Goodnight Moon, continually Goodnight Moon. But everyone who reads Animal Farm knows that it's more than just about the animals and how they're organized and the cuteness of how they talk. It's less about animals and it's more about us. The Bible can do this and does this quite often, but in a pretty particular way that that normal literature, things like Animal Farm, can't, can't quite do. For most of literature, the story on the surface has meaning only insofar as you can see below the story on the surface, like Animal Farm. But God, as the greatest storyteller, does better than that. So God will oftentimes leave us clues and hints in the very words that he uses that this particular thing is pointing beyond itself while also keeping that thing incredibly significant. All that might be a bit abstract, but you'll see what I mean by this as we turn to Exodus chapter 18. We get a glimpse of this very phenomenon here as we we have the appearance of Jethro again, Moses' father-in-law. Having come for a visit, he brings Moses' family in tow with him, talks with him a bit, gives him some advice, and then leaves. While his visit and advice are of great importance, we will highlight that I don't believe that that is the only thing the author is trying to tell us as we move on then to Exodus 19 as well. But first, let us read from Exodus 18. God's word begins in the 18th chapter of the book of Exodus. Jethro, the priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word to Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how the Lord had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel, and that he had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro said, Blessed be the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. 
Now I know that the Lord is greater than all gods, because in this affair they have dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. The next day Moses sat to judge the people, and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, Because the people come to me and inquire about God. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, What you're doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out, for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice, and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God, and you shall warn them about the statutes and laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. But moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over peoples as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let, them judge all the pe- and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. This is the word of our God. Let's first talk about Jethro's instructions. The visit is primarily here, it seems, for the good advice that Jethro is going to give to Moses. Moses is spending a good deal of time, apparently, judging over the people of Israel. And this, at some level, should come as no surprise, although there's nothing so far in the text that would lead us to think that this was actually happening. But peace people, even even in times of great peace and calm, will sometimes squabble and fuss with one another. Difficulties are going to arise, and those particular issues need to be adjudicated by someone, typically not the two people who are involved. Given that they've been traveling through the desert, they're unsure of their next stop, they're people who are living in tents, I would think that these sort of squabbles occur ever more frequently. So Moses has been kept pretty busy. So busy, in fact, that Jethro looks at him and says, you know, you are, you are no longer a spring chicken. You are old meat, man. And, and because of that, you're not going to be able to do this for very long. It's been, it's been three months since you've come out. You're not going to be able to withstand this kind of continual pressure on your time and on your days and the weight and the burden that's upon you. So, so here's what you're going to do. You're going to delegate. You're going to find responsible, good, able men, and you're going to make them sort of in authority over people, depending on, on their age and depending on their responsibilities and how respected they are and how good they are at judging these things. You're going to 
place them over 10 or 50 or 100 or 1,000 people, and and they're going to handle the matters of the people below them. When those things prove too difficult, then, then they'll just work up the chain. Eventually, you will be the last stop. This way you can still make known to everybody what, what they are supposed to do and how they're supposed to live, but it will greatly decrease the burden that is upon you. There is an immense amount to gain from this advice, all on its own. First, I think it's incredibly wise to delegate. Moses can and will get wearied by the constant drone of people and their problems. And it's not that the people here are even grumbling a lot. It's just that they're going to need direction. They're going to need to know, can this happen? What happens in this case? There has to be somebody above them to say, you are in the right, you are in the wrong. Moses simply cannot handle them all and either stay alive or stay sane. And so Jethro comes in with this advice. And the real problem is not just in Moses' health, but it's also in the focus that he has. Moses has other things that he needs to do. Moses has other bits of instruction that he needs to provide to people. Moses has other leadership responsibilities besides simply judging between the squabbles and the common problems that people have, and, and even calling them squabbles. I don't mean to diminish this. It's clear that this is important work. So God through Jethro, is allowing Moses to know that there is a better way to handle this so that you can have your time focused where it needs to be focused, and these things can still be helped. This whole thing seems like a foretaste of Acts chapter 6. The church has a problem, a major problem. The apostles say, listen, even though this is a major problem, this shouldn't distract us. There's going to be major problems again in the future. There's always going to be problems. It's not even the fact that people are sinful. It's just the fact that this is the world we live in. There's always going to be problems. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to appoint seven men, deacons, to serve, to help, to guide and direct these things. And for the rest of the time, we're going to devote ourselves to the Word of God. And this is the beginning of deacons. This is the beginning of deacons, maybe in Acts 6, but you can also trace it back here to Exodus 18. This is where the idea comes from. So that that I... And Josh, together as elders, are not collectively dealing with all of the difficulties that our people have. We, we delegate that out to other things so that we can focus our time, so that we're not burdened by all of it. Our deacons, by the way, do an excellent job of this. Do an excellent job. And while we're here, I'll say something just kind of in passing. They do such an excellent job that I don't need to answer those questions. And many times you guys come to me with questions that I can't answer. If you come to me with a question about buildings and grounds... I'm going to direct you to the buildings and grounds deacons. If you come to me with a question about hospitality, I'm going to direct you to Kelly. If you come to me with questions about an area of expertise that one of our deacons is over, I'm just going to point you in their direction. Not because I can't answer that, sometimes I can't, but because that's what they're there for. Use those deacons for that. Find out what your deacons do and entrust that ministry to them. It's wise to delegate. But it's also good for others' sake to be humble. One of the stunning things throughout Exodus chapter 18 is how many times we have explained the relationship between Moses and this Jethro. Did you know that Jethro was Moses' father-in-law? I don't know if you picked up on it. It says it maybe six or seven times in the passage, Moses' father-in-law. I think that there's a reason why. Because what Moses is being asked to do is humbling to him. You can't handle all of this. And there is absolutely no one in authority over him in Israel. But there is one man who has the right to look at him and say, you need to listen to me, Moses. 
And that's his father-in-law, Jethro. So Jethro comes and he does precisely that. And Jethro's understanding here is that it's not just good for your health, but it's important for everyone else. Notice what he says here in verse 18. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out. It's not just that Moses is worn down by this, but if you're 3,000th in the queue to come see Moses, you are wearied by that, right? It's like that line in a Christmas story. Right? It goes all the way across the store. Right? You're standing there and you're saying, I've got this problem with my neighbor, and Moses isn't available until Tuesday in March. And you're like, this is infuriating. Like, I, I can't see him. And, and he's, the whole point is, you're, you're, if you are not humble and delegate these things out, you're not just going to weary yourself out. You're going to weary your people out. So it's not just wise to delegate. It's wise for others' sake to be humble. The last thing I want to point out about this particular thing is just that it's, it's wise to put men of good character in places of authority. Jethro does highlight the fact that they need to be able, verse 21. Moreover, look for able men. They have to have competency here. You can have incredibly holy men who are filled with the fear of the Lord. They want to do what is right. They want to do what is good, but just lack the ability to critically think through issues. So you can't get those. They need to be able. But ability is not the only qualification. Jethro, even Jethro, goes on to say, you need people who will fear God, right? People who will do what is right in the sight of God, who, who pursue the things of God, who want to do what God has them do, who will fear the Lord and fear falling before the Lord much more than they fear men. You need people who won't take a bribe, People who are, have this sort of steadfast refusal to be partial, who will judge the facts of the case, not based on what they can gain from it, but based on what is right and true. He lastly says people are trustworthy. Listen, both parties, when they come with a problem before these judges, need to understand that this judge is trustworthy. If they don't trust him, they're not going to listen to him. He's got to be trustworthy. It is never good nor advisable for any reason, no matter how pragmatic or otherwise, to elect or appoint leaders of bad character. It's never okay. The Bible never gives warrant for it. Jethro's instruction is clear, and it, it seems to free up Moses in a number of ways. However, let's talk then, secondly, about Jethro's importance. Because while that is a portion of our chapter, we have to question what in the world this is even doing here. Because if you were to read through Exodus 14, 15, 16, 17, and then skip up to 19, you really wouldn't miss much. Now, it's true you would miss this bit about how Israel is organizing itself as it's being judged. But honestly, if you take that out, everything in Exodus still makes a good lot of sense. The, the mountain scene in chapter 19 could make sense. The giving of the Ten Commandments in chapter 20, the, the instruction about the tabernacle and the offerings that are, that's going to come in later chapters, all of it still makes sense. This seems like it's kind of squeezed in here. We've heard nothing but the people talking about the nation or the people of Israel time and time again, how they grumble and complain and the difficulties that they're having. And then, then all of a sudden we take a break from that. We completely pull out of that to talk about Moses' family, who, by the way, we didn't even know disappeared. 
We don't know when he sent them away. If it was after the weird foreskin event, before he even got to Egypt, or if when he got to Egypt, he looked around and said, this is, this is a little bit shaky for me to want you to be here, so why don't you guys go back to Jethro, and then I'll see you sometime in the future. We have no idea that they even departed. So why are we bringing this up again? Notice, we didn't even know that this practice was happening. We didn't even know that it was a strain on Moses. It just kind of comes out of nowhere. I didn't know really what to make of it. I should tell you that I didn't come up with the comparison that I'm going to make here in a second. This is the work of John Salehammer, who did this in a helpful book that he wrote. And he notes that if we go back to a specific passage in Genesis, we find a number of things that line up between who Jethro is and who Melchizedek is. And the way in which these two relate to one another is important. If you go back to Genesis 14 and 15, you find that as Abraham returns from war, he comes upon this specific Melchizedek, who is not just the king of Salem, but he is the prince or priest of Salem. He's a priest, not in Abraham's line, who blesses Abraham, praises God for giving him victory, and he eats with him. After this particular meeting, Abraham says, or hears from God, that, that God's covenant will be with him, he will be a shield to him, and Abraham says, but, but I don't have any descendants, right? This is the whole point of, of, of Genesis 15. Abraham says, I don't have any descendants. Eleazar of Damascus, he's, my, he's the only one who's going to inherit from me. I have no physical descendants. And God says, well, look up at the stars, and I will give them to you. Abraham believes him. It's credited to him as righteousness. Then in Abraham's small little, I have belief, but help my unbelief type of moment, he says, but I need, I need assurances that they're going to get the land. And God says, okay, I will make an assurance for you. He has him cut up some animals, separate them. God's going to pass between them, but before he does, he causes a sleep to fall on him. He hears the word of the Lord that his people, his children, will go down to Egypt for 400 years, and he will bring them out, and then he will give them the land. I want you to see how many parallels there are between Jethro's showing up here and what happens in Melchizedek. Both Jethro and Melchizedek are priests, specifically named as priests, but both are priests of the Most High God outside of Abraham's lineage, not inside Abraham's lineage. They both stand as Gentiles, as it were. Melchizedek is king of Salem. King of Salem means very closely related to the word shalom, which is exactly the word, although it's not translated this way, that happens to come up in verse 7 when it says, and each asked of their welfare, it means that they, they asked for shalom to be upon the other. They, they said shalom to one another, well-wishing, a full, happy understanding and fullness of life. Shalom in both of these cases. Both of them arrive after war and after victory, both bless the Lord for that victory. Both share a meal with the person that they are visiting. Both have worship activities after that meal related to offerings. Abraham giving tithes, Jethro giving sacrifice. Moses' son is named Eleazar. The exact name of the child who was going to inherit from Abraham. His other son is named Gershom using the exact same language that God said, I'm going to send them down to be sojourners in a foreign land. Moses' son's name is, I have been a foreigner, or I've been a sojourner in a foreign land. Now, why make those comparisons? Why is Jethro here being pinned? I don't think 
as another Melchizedek, but why is the, the author drawing our attention back to Melchizedek? I think it's precisely for what happens afterward. Because what happens afterward is God will look at Moses and he will say, the promises that I made to you in chapter 12 are to be sure. And he passes through those split things. Animals dead on either side is a way of saying, if I am not good to my word, may I be as these animals split in two, dead and gone. That's God's promise to Abraham. I will make the covenant come true. The covenant was a covenant of blessing, which is nothing less than, again, this, this sort of anti-curse, the reversing of the curse. God is to make Abraham's children into a nation. God is to dwell with his people, just as he dwelled with Adam and Eve in the garden. He is, he is undoing the curse of the garden, and therefore remaking the garden. So he is supposed to dwell with them. As Adam and Eve walked among God, so the people of Israel are to walk among God. They should do so in a land of, of blessing, in Edenic paradise. We might want to say they should do it in a land that's flowing with milk and honey. So while what we should be expecting is not a new covenant, we ought to be expecting a significant movement toward the completion of that promise. What we get is Exodus 18 sort of priming the pump for what we ought to find in Exodus 19. And the author is drawing our attention to this, saying, listen, what comes next is going to be important. And what comes next ought to be, in your mind, a ratification of the Abrahamic covenant and at least a significant step forward in the completion of it. So what do we get in Exodus chapter 19? Read with me, if you would. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day, they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in thick cloud, that the people may hear when I speak with you and, all may, and may also believe you forever. When Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and be ready for the third day. For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people and you shall set limits for the people all around saying, Take care not to go up into the mountain or touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the trumpeter sounds a long blast, they shall come up the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people. 
and they washed their garments. And he said to the people, Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up, and the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. Also let priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. And Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up to Mount Sinai, for you yourself warned us, saying, Set limits around the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and come up bringing Aaron with you, but do not let the priests and the people break through to come up to the Lord, lest he break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them, This is the word of our God. Let's go through our last point, which is Israel's insufficiency. Israel's insufficiency. This is the day that came to be known as Pentecost. We're told that this is three new moons after it, with a couple of days here or there. We get to 50, and 50 is indeed Pentecost. Moses reaffirms to the people the promise of God. You've seen my works. You know my character by now. If you hear my words and what I say, you will be my treasured possession. Over all of the people of the earth, they're all mine. So they're all my possession, but you will be my treasured one. I will watch over you. I will care for you. I will make sure that nothing bad happens to you. I will treasure you above all the rest. He says, if you do my word, not only will you be a treasured possession, but you'll be a kingdom of priests. That is, the entire kingdom would be filled with priests. And you will then function as priests, not to one another, but to the outside world. You will do what priests are meant to do, to mediate my presence to those who are not in my presence. So, because all of you are priests, and I am with all of you, you are going to take the knowledge of the Lord out to the nations, to those other peoples who are mine, and call them to know the Lord. And you're to be a holy nation fully set aside for God, belonging to him, knowing him, walking rightly in purity and in righteousness before him. To these things, all the people heartily agreed, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. The Lord then gave some instructions as to what happens next. The people are to prepare themselves for three days not only set aside by Moses and consecrated there to be clean, their clothes are to be clean. The instruction to not go near a woman is, is a prohibition against sex. He's saying basically you are to keep yourself from sexual activity so that you can be fully focused on me, not on your neighbors, not on your wife. You are to be focused upon me. When God comes down upon the mountain and only then, they are to ascend the mountain. And this is where I think the ESV is wrong. In verse 13, the end of verse 13, what the ESV says is, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. They're trying to make sense of a difficulty in this passage. I don't think coming up to the mountain is the right way to put it. The CSB, the Holman Standard 2017, says this. 
when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, they may go up the mountain. The word that's used here literally means to ascend. So it is true that they probably have to ascend in some way, shape, or form to get up to the mountain, but clearly the implication is that they are going to ascend into the mountain. They are going to go up where Moses goes up. When you hear the horn blast, that is what you're supposed to do. But then something happens that catches each and every one of them by surprise. The Lord actually comes, and it is objectively terrifying. It's hard for me to know what it was that they would feel like. I think, maybe this isn't the case with you, but CGI is ruining my emotional imagination, right? Because now I can imagine a number of things happening and I've seen a number of things on screen that I'm now distant from, but I can picture, right? So I can picture all that junk from the Lord of the Rings because I've seen it on screen, even though I'm not emotionally invested in it. And I can understand how somebody could make this CGI mountain fire bonanza and, and look at it and watch it and think, wow, that's really cool, but be completely emotionally divested from what's going on here. I will have to say, though, this has got to be the most terrifying thing that anyone anywhere has ever seen. The day comes, a cloud descends over the mountain, and the mountain begins to be on fire. So burning is the inferno on top that Psalm 97 says that God is melting the mountain with his presence. There's nothing but thunder and lightning and darkness around them. They see the fire. And then, among the cacophony of all the lightning strikes and the thunder going off, there's now this horn that begins to grow louder and louder and louder. And the people are looking around at one another like, are you going to go up? Am I going to go up? And it gets louder and louder and louder. And they say, we, we, we're not doing this. And they take their stand, not ascending the mountain, but at the foot of the mountain. Moses, God calls to him, ascends the mountain, and he does so alone. God warns him, you better make sure that they don't come up now. Moses says, well, we've got, we've got the barricades, like you said. He said, you better make sure. You better go down and tell them they're not to come up this mountain anymore. I think the point is this. The people were indeed supposed to go up the mountain when the horn was heard. But they rejected the word that the Lord had spoken to them. They feared what they saw, but only enough to disobey God. This was to be, at least in part, the very blessing of the garden come to fruition. They were to be a people close to God in his presence, just as Adam and Eve were. They were to be the ones who were in what we began to know of as the Holy of Holies, marking out that God is among them, not in some separate but tangible way, but there among them. By this act, they naturally made themselves outsiders. They made themselves distant from God. Now, they were not going to be priests and mediators for the outside world, but they themselves needed priests and mediators to come to them. God would still be with them, 
up to this point in the text, you know what we haven't had any mention of when it comes to God and his people? There's been no mention of temple. There's been no mention of tabernacle. There's been no mention of priests. It is only after this incident that we even get a hint that God has to have those things now because the people shrunk back from God. I think that what happens in the rest of Exodus is exactly a response to this. There now needs to be a tabernacle. There now needs to be a holy of holies. There now needs to be priests who can indeed enter in for the people and mediate the people to God and God to the people. This is supposed to be something of the completion of the promise to Abraham to reverse the curse. And it can't come to reality now. When does it come to reality? Well, easy enough. When Jesus comes. Listen to what Peter says. Peter, looking at the people of God in Jesus Christ, says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Sound familiar? Not any more them. You are this. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's exactly what priests were supposed to do. And now he says that's what the people of Jesus do. What Israel should have been, we are. What Israel should have been given, we are given. They were to walk with God. They were to be in the presence of God. But now God is, even though with them, somewhat separated from them. They have to travel to Jerusalem. And even then, they can't enter in fully to the Holy of Holies. But one time a year, and one man, that one time a year after being cleansed, God is indeed in their presence, but he is somewhat distant from them. But when? When does God fully dwell with his people? When does that happen? It happens at Pentecost. When the Spirit comes down, dwelling in believers, the fullness of God, not just among his people, in his people. This as much as anything else, is the fulfillment of the promise of Abraham. This is why the giving of the Spirit was such a momentous occasion in the early church. This giving of the Spirit marked out that God is now with us, dwelling in us. This is better than Eden, because he's not outside of us, but he dwells in us. This is what Pentecost was meant to be. And Pentecost is here shown to be that God is with us in reference to and in light of what happens in Exodus 19, which happened at the original Pentecost. And we are indeed priests of God, mediating God to the outside world and that world to our God. This is something the book of Hebrews drives home again and again and again. The people of Israel failed. The people specifically failed here and elsewhere on their journey because they failed to trust in God. That is the essence of sin. This is why faith is the response that we are to give. The essence of sin is not believing in the words of God. Hebrew reminds us not only of their failure, but warns us of a greater punishment now that we have tasted and known as to what it means for us to then fall away. Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 28, anyone who has set aside the lie who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Meaning, not if you cross over, you know, 
and, and do something the law of Moses says you ought not do. But if you do it with a high hand, if you do it arrogantly, if you know that Moses says this and you say, I don't care about Moses, I don't care about the law, I don't care about Yahweh, I'm going to do it, and there's no repentance found in you, there's no desire to, to even come close to the law, you don't do it and say, oh man, I shouldn't have done that, but it's high-handed is the word that the Bible uses for that. He says, there's no mercy for you, you die. Now, Hebrews goes on and says, how much worse punishment than death? He just said, you die. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, who has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It's not all bad news. The book of Hebrews goes on to remind the people when you first heard, you suffered. You turned your back on the world and the world lashed out at you. You, you gratefully accepted the pilfering of your property and you, you were joyful in it because you knew you had a better home. You knew you had a better, better reward than anything that this world could give you. You know, at the end of chapter 10, he continues with that warning, quoting God himself. He says, My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. All of this comes to a pinnacle in the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. And in chapter 12, he says this, you, friends, have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem and to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Therefore, let us be grateful. For receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So you need to understand, you didn't come up to a mountain. You didn't come up to this thing that can be touched. You didn't come up to this, this pseudo-reality of who God is. You realize that this is a shadow of what was to come. That the reality that they were getting was a symbol, a picture, if you will, a facsimile, a substitute for the real presence of God. It was there and it was real, but it wasn't really real. And he says, you've come to something much better and greater than that. You've come to a fire that is beyond fire and to happiness and joy that is beyond all joys because you followed Jesus himself. And let's be very clear about what's going on here. Jesus doesn't change the nature of God. The very nature that you see on the mountain is the very nature of God, and it doesn't change because Jesus has now come. Jesus doesn't change the nature of God, but he does change us. 
God is still the God who melts mountains. The God who thundered then, thunders still. The God of terror on the mountain is the very same today as he was then. There's no new aspect of God. God has not learned to chill. He has not discovered the glories of love. He has not awakened to a new movement in his soul or rethought the end of his ways. God doesn't flicker or dim. He does not move away or sway. It's not a cloud that gives over to shadows of change. God is a rock, as we have said and we have sung. He is a mountain. Nay, he's, he's not really either, but we, we lack words to speak of an unmovable reality. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. So the terror persists. Don't, don't esteem God lightly. Do not think that entering into his presence is something that one does while considering the schedule for the day, pursuing the pleasures of the world. Hebrews reminds us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But we are not like the Israelites, as Hebrews has told us, for we will not shrink back because something has changed. We are not beckoned up that mountain by Moses, who has seen but never tasted the wrath that is unfolding at the top of it. We do not follow thinkers who simply meditate on the truth or priests who can only speak of the truth. Rather, what changed is that we followed Jesus up the mountain. Our Jesus, who knows well both the wrath and the love, the power and the might of God, and the very God that he brings us to. Jesus himself prepared for three days, ascends not to the picture of God on a mountain, but he ascends to the very heavenly tabernacle, the very dwelling of God, walks up to God Almighty, takes the scroll out of his hands, and begins to enact his will. This very Jesus tells us how and where to step. He guides us and directs us, for he himself is the way, the truth, and the life. So we do see power and terror and wrath and the awesomeness of God. And even more so than the Israelites could have possibly understood, we understand. So we ascend. For Jesus has gone before us, assured us of the path, and made a covenant of peace between us and God. Therefore, the terror is real, but it is not ours. The inferno does not shake us back. The terror is not ours, but it is for us. The fire is not to fall on us, but it is for us. The power is not against us, but it is for us. The might of God is directed to the good of his people for their help and love, for their encouragement and emboldening. Don't ever think, don't ever think that Jesus tames God. He doesn't tame God. He makes us fit for the mountain. So do not shrink back. Don't draw back to the things of this world, but press evermore into the fire and the lightning. Press into the cloud and the thunder, because this is who God is. Majestic in holiness. Awesome in glorious deeds. Doing wonders. Let us pray. Father, let the power and the ferocity that we see here expressed in your word, telling us of who you are, not make us shrink back into disobedience, but let us press on into faith. 
For we have a great high priest, willing to enter as sin into your presence, who has taken wrath and penalty in our place. So let us follow him into your very presence, filled with faith and hope, love and expectation, holy and righteous in your sight. We ask these things by faith in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. If you will, stand and sing with us our hymn of response, It Is Well With My Soul.